Hi everybody, you're listening to The Rope Podcast with Box and Maya. Thanks for supporting the show. This is a show with adult content, so if you are not of legal age where you live, then turn off now. Rope bondage is a risky activity, and you shouldn't attempt it without first getting proper training. Listen to episode zero if you haven't already. Fox is a rigger, and Maya is a bottom. We are long-term rope partners who live in Bangkok, Thailand. We love to share our passion for rope with the wider community. This episode is made possible by our patrons who support us each month. If you would like to help, head to ropepodcast.com to see many options. This year, we want to focus on bringing the Rope Podcast to a wider audience. To achieve that, we would like to ask you to follow us on Instagram and reshare this episode in your Instagram stories. We are Rope Podcast on Instagram. Another thing that helps us is if you give us a star rating on Apple Podcasts. It's anonymous, so you won't have your name visible on the internet connected with a kinky podcast, don't worry. And now, going on with the show. Mel is a neurodiverse, queer, rope customization professional from the Middle East, laying down roots in London. She began by treating ropes for Anatomy Shibari store, modelling for classes, and as a teaching assistant for rope bottoms. After dedicating years to learning from a variety of practitioners, she has become a teacher for both riggers and bottoms. She has been offering rope customization services and education and rigging services for productions and events since 2021. As a teacher, she finds joy in introducing people to rope, working with them to encourage curiosity and to teach them in the best way possible for them as individuals. Mel's style is often described as meeting bottoms where they're at and seeking to give them what they need. She is committed to her growth in her rope practice and developing her style. Hi, Mel, and welcome to the Rope Podcast. Hello. Hi. So to get us started, Mel, can you tell us how you discovered rope bondage in the first place? Discovering rope bondage? Um... I always uh, kind of had a little bit of an affinity for it. I think like a lot of 90s babies, we kind of had some unfiltered access to the internet, maybe when we shouldn't have been having it. (laughs) (laughs) And for those of us that had like certain interests, just meant that uh, you kind of found that sort of stuff maybe a little earlier than than is appropriate or when you should have been finding it. Um, So... It's always been something that's been an interest to me. Um, however, it wasn't until maybe I was going to say, I think I was about 22, 23, uh, when I moved to London and realized that there was actually a scene, such a thing as a kink scene. It wasn't an imaginary thing or something that, you know, I just hoped one day I would stumble into. It was a thing that existed that I could have access to, that I could get into. And uh, yeah, when I moved to London, I uh, I started working at Anatomy Studio at their Shibari store. Luckily, they happened to have uh, uh, they needed some part time work, and I desperately needed part time work, <laughs> so I started working there. Um, and through that, I met the community that I am in now in the scene, and that's. Definitely how, how rope started out for me. That's how I found it. And what is important to you about rope now? So, so what place does rope hold in your life at the moment? 
I have to say rope is actually a really core part of uh, many different facets of my life. Many, uh, much of my life revolves around it uh, at this point. I, I moved to London not really knowing many people. Um, it was kind of a whim. I used to be a circus performer. Okay. So I moved to London uh, after a pretty rough breakup with no work really in mind and a dream and this girl going to the big city kind of vibe. <laughs> and I came here and I started working at the studio, uh, I think the second day I moved. Um, and that was back in 2019 and I'm still there, still there, never left. Um, my social life and my community has all come from that space. My work and especially work throughout COVID came from that space, as did the work that I do outside of that space now. Now I rig professionally as a house rigger in various kink events here in London uh, for music videos or productions. Uh, I teach um, and I do that privately and in other spaces. Some of my close friends of open spaces and I get the opportunity to teach there now. And yeah, so it's really uh, become kind of a, a core part of every, every part of my day to day. You mentioned the term house rigger. What does that mean exactly? Oh, house rigger. So um, the, some of the events is definitely becoming more popular now um, on the London scene, uh, though it's definitely not the first time it's been done. So uh, a lot of uh, events and things here, they generally won't um, allow for rope play happening in the wider kink events, just because I think people realize that it's quite a risky section of, of bondage and of BDSM. So generally, because a lot of people don't necessarily have, they, don't real, they realize they don't have the knowledge that they need to in order to keep their guests safe or monitor what they're doing. They generally just don't allow for rope play to be happening at the larger kink events. So now what they've been doing actually is hiring people who rig or sort of advertise that they rig professionally and vetting those people and hiring them as uh, to provide a service, kind of like a pro dom at the event or something. You're a pro rigger there to tie guests uh, for a period of time and be able to give guests the experience of being in rope and you are yeah so instead of uh, guests tying one another up and then risking things they just hire somebody professionally to come in and do it for a period of time in the playrooms or things at the parties which has been really fun hey guys this is fox coming in for a short break we really want to share our love of rope to as many listeners as possible and for that we need your help Please go to Instagram and follow our account Rope Podcast, then reshare this episode in your stories. Show your love of rope and help others discover it too. Yeah, it sounds it sounds fun and I guess also challenging if sometimes you have to tie someone you don't have as much of a connection with. It has actually been, it's been a very interesting journey for me uh, as a rigger. It's uh, it's definitely one that I felt very uncomfortable with when I first started. It kind of rang every alarm bell in terms of when you tie in a personal capacity. It kind of rang every alarm bell of, 
it's somebody that you don't know. It's tying straight off the bat. You have a very short period of time for negotiating. You're also at a party where there is the potential of other influences. Like you don't know how much somebody has been drinking. You don't know if they've been taking other substances. You don't know, uh, you don't know them at all. You don't know their communication style. You don't know how they react. And a lot of the times it's the very first time they've ever been in Rome. So those are all risks that are that will obviously make I think any any rigor kind of like quite uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, how do you manage that? Um so it started off uh, I I was very hyper vigilant when I first started. I would uh I would have the events kind of advertised that I'm going to be tying there either through social media, Instagram, things like that. And I would have the guests that wanted to be tied, get in touch with me beforehand. And I would kind of create a wait list to a certain extent where prior to the event, I would be exchanging emails or messages with those people and kind of having an opportunity. I used to have a list of questions that I would ask them and we would talk back and forth. I also have like liability waivers that I would have people sign as well as sort of medical history forms just to give me a bit of kind of give me a cheat sheet of what what injuries do you have what don't you have what are your some of your medical things talk to me a little bit about you know some of your uh like maybe mental health stuff that might come into play some of your uh, any trauma and stuff like that so I was very hyper vigilant at the beginning and I would make sure all of that stuff was uh coming into play as time has gone on I've really grown to love doing it it's no longer something that I actually find scary, which is very interesting to say, actually. Um, it taught me a lot about the kind of rope that I enjoy tying. I think because it's such an uncomfortable experience, it's something that I don't think we, as riggers, we won't like put ourselves in like those types of situations often. But where I, where I was in those situations often, but I also knew I had the autonomy of uh, I'm here as the professional, like I'm the one running this, sh this show to a certain extent. And as much as I'm here to provide a service, I also have full backing of all the organizers and stuff to be able to like look after myself here and make sure that things are running how I want. It kind of allowed me the freedom to relax. I learned a lot about being able to read people mm -hmm. and learning a lot about being able to read people's body language and read them quickly, uh, how to negotiate in a short space of time, particularly with people who maybe don't have the skill set to be able to articulate what it is that they're looking for. Um, and it's turned out to be a really positive experience. It's really elevated the rope that I do in my personal life. It's made me, and it's made me more specific about the kind of rope that I do in my personal life. I used to think that I was more of a sadistic kind of mean rigor. Um, and I'm sure that will come up at some point in terms of being an accidental rigor. But like I used to think that I was sort of mean and sadistic and quite, uh, yeah, just toppy, very, very toppy kind of vibe. And having done, uh, having been a house rigger now for quite a while, 
I realized that uh, in my per in my personal life, I'm a I'm a bottom, and very 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 near and dear to my heart. I'm sh shock horror. A lot of uh, switches for starting off as bottoms and becoming a uh, becoming rope tops and stuff. But uh, yeah, in my personal life, I was I'm very much a bottom uh, and and a sub, and particularly leaning in towards service. And I came to find that my rope is very much service inclined. Like the thing that I loved the most and the thing that I, I was able to find the most from doing rope professionally at parties was that I love being able to provide this service to somebody and just to kind of work with them to find out what it is that they want what it is that they need maybe or the thing that they maybe don't realize that they do need in that moment and being able to be the person that gives that to them and achieving that is immensely satisfying awesome and how yeah. did you get into rope maintenance so i when i started off doing when i started off with rope in generally i started working at shibari store which is anatomy's online store um and I started working there making, well, treating the rope that they sell and making all the products that they sell. So I started off with them teaching me how they do that and like proceeded by treating just, just hundreds and thousands and thousands of meters of rope. <laughs> So, so many, 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 many meters of rope. I think we did some sort of crazy calculation where we ended up we end up treating like a hundred and ten thousand meters of rope or something in a year or something crazy like. So I started treating rope there. And over the years, I I just saw how some of our processes kind of would tweak or maybe change or what made it what looks like a good piece of rope and then what looks like it needed a bit more work to it or it wasn't up to standard i did i wanted to understand like why those things were happening it was really nice to find a uh, to to kind of find something to nerd out about outside of just tying it was something that i could just do on my own at home without any didn't need like suspension points or things like this didn't need to do any of that stuff it was very meditative and chill and and I had the benefit of kind of having people who were a lot more knowledgeable knowledgeable about about this sort of stuff around me being at the studio and kind of being able to chat their ear off and gather as much intel from all of these people as possible and start experimenting myself. And why do you think, if you do, that it's an important topic for rope people, tops, bottoms, all the flavours uh, to understand? Wow, yeah. So there's there's a few points for this that I have and they all feel quite important. <laughs> they all feel quite important. Um I think one of the first ones that I I like to point out for people is that uh, rope is a really expensive hobby. The barrier to entry financially to for for getting into rope is is really high. Like not just I mean workshops on themselves, classes, you know, accessing a space where you can practice regularly, especially if you're going into suspension stuff, and if 
you are going into that and you don't have the space, then being able to create that at home potentially, these are all things that are really expensive. But then we take into we take into account just the rope in itself, buying treated, cut, ready to go jute rope. It it costs a lot. I mean, like a good kit, especially uh, a full kit from me or from the studio or something, we're looking at like 200 pounds maybe. How many coils of rope would that be a full kit for you? For me, I, I'm a bit of a rope hoarder, so <laughs> my kits can be a little larger maybe than other people. Generally, I have about, uh, I'm going to say about 18 mm-hmm. tanks of rope. That's going to be like 10 to 12 of my standard lengths. I like a couple of long boys <laughs> in there, a couple of long ones in there, and then a variety of shorter lengths, two-thirds, halves, thirds, uh, shit bits. We like to call them as well. So. Yeah. And, and that costs a, it costs a lot. Um, so I think that rope treatment and rope maintenance, one of the reasons it's really important is to be able to kind of get more bang for your buck and ensuring that your rope has a long lifespan. So, you know, you're not having to replace them as fast and as often. Um, I, I think also learning about that sort of stuff gives you a sense of agency over your kits and over your rope. Like, you know, if you were in a situation where you had to cut your rope suddenly and you're thinking, Oh my God, (laughs) Oh no. Like, obviously I'm going to do it because, this person is more important than this piece of rope, but God, that's however much money. And that's just gone now and you'll have to replace it. But if you have, you know, if you have the tools in your toolkit, so to speak, to be able to treat a piece of rope from scratch to, to ready to use on your own, then I think that that gives people it one, it can save you some money. If you're buying your jute, like if you're buying your rope uh, on a reel and raw and doing it yourself, saves you some money. But yeah, it also gives you the freedom to kind of make what you want when you want it without having to rely on a shop or a store mm-hmm. and things like that. Another reason I think as well is it improve. it's a safety aspect as well. Being able to... Uh, a part of looking after your rope and making sure it has a long lifespan is looking at um, the health, quote unquote, of, of your piece of rope. Like, what's the tensioning in it like? What uh, what are some problem areas that are happening? Being able to fix those things and make sure that, you know, your bites aren't completely fucked and you're looking after those and maintaining them and making sure that the people that you're tying or the things that you're tying are going to be uh, are going to be safe uh, and you can feel safe using your rope as well. You can feel comfortable and relaxed knowing that it's looked after, not like you've just left it in a bag for four months and then taken it out and been like, I'm just going to tie with it. And in the back of your head, you're going, oh, God, maybe it's uh, maybe I shouldn't be doing that. Maybe a moth got in there or maybe something happened or maybe this, maybe that. I haven't checked on it. And that can that can really mess up a scene that can really mess up your fun, too. You can't be present. I think handling your rope quite often. So part of the maintenance and the treatment, obviously, you're going to be touching this piece of rope and handling it a lot. I think that in itself improves your rope handling and understanding how rope moves, 
which is uh, something that I think I didn't, I kind of took for granted having worked in Shibari store and that was my start to rope. I started off as a rope bottom and then moved into tying later, but I had a year, two years under my belt of handling rope, like, and large quantities of rope for, you know, six to eight hours a day. By the time I started handling rope to tie, it was a it was a piece of equipment that I was it was a tool that I was very comfortable dealing with. Kind of like when you first writing, learning to write and you're using a pen for the first time when you're a kid and you look at adults and you're like, how are they doing this so easily? <laughs> I can't write anything. My all my letters are shaking and it's just this is impossible. And then over time, you know, in practice, you're scroll like scribbling away really really easily is the handwriting legible as an adult it's questionable that's still a question but yeah so I think it yeah it definitely improves the rope handling understanding how rope moves and it also just and this may be a bit wishy-washy for some people but I think it also just build, helps build a connection with your with your kit as well it's um there's the maintenance, there's the treatment side, but there's also like the pers a personalization side to it. Um, the way you treat your rope, uh, the, the process that you end up creating for that, that can be quite personal. And it's kind of similar to, I don't know if anybody or if either of you uh, know much about like tarot cards or tarot reading and stuff like that. Not so much. But I guess with, with that sort of stuff, there's a, there's a spiritual element to uh, connecting with your deck of cards. Mm -hmm. And that's your deck of cards. And it's meant to be used by you and, and just you. And it's almost like they speak to you and stuff. And I really believe that with your ropes as well. I think looking after them, I think when you look after your kit, it looks after you. When you look after your, when you take care of your rope, it will take care of you when you use it. It's kind of the, the Japanese have that sort of belief that every object has a soul hmm. and i really think that with your ropes with people's ropes and, and stuff and so that can connect to your rope related rituals if you have a whole preparation of your kit before you even mm -hmm. get to the location where you're seeing is going to happen you're already putting yourself in a mindset of okay i'm doing these activities as a prelude to rope that's going to happen later yeah absolutely like it really builds quite heavily into the ritual side definitely um I know that I, uh, my partner and I, we do rope and stuff, and and that plays a part definitely in, in, like his kit, where his previous kit and stuff was a kit that I sat and I I customized and I retreated and I, uh, like put a lot of love and care into that, and that kit lasted a really long time. <laughs> that kit lasted a really long time, and it became like a real part of the the kind of ritual every every time we were opening up that to tie or or seeing it and it was just yeah it's it's a really nice part to build into like if you have certain dynamics where even just with yourself it's a nice way to you, you said you'd uh, customize your partner's kit what kind of customization can one do with a rope kit so there's loads of stuff i think that you can do i so as i mentioned before the treatment process itself can be personalized so uh, there's, if you look online and you look on forums and stuff, 
you'll see that there are a million and one different ways that you can treat your kits. And so over time, I think people will develop the process that feels right for them and that they like the most and gives them the ropes that they 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 enjoy the feel of the most. But there's also some really cool, like random traditional things that um, maybe don't really get done so much anymore, like treating your, like giving your ropes a wipe down with, uh, I think the traditional one was sake. Okay. Um, and you just give a wipe down with something with a very high alcohol content because we can't get ropes wet. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you wipe down with something high alcohol, like isopropyl or something, that evaporates very quickly. So, for example, my partner and I, our first date, we went sake tasting. <laughs> and so if I were to make a kit for just he and I to be using, I would, I might wipe the ropes down with sake when I am, like, preparing them to to give to him or something. And, like, that in itself is a really, like, sentimental and personal touch that you can do with them. But then there are more like visible and aesthetic things you can do, like uh, picking stopper knots and tying uh, different stopper knots onto your ropes. You can whip the ends of them. So the whipping is where you add a a small uh, colored string to the end where your stopper knot is, and it just adds a nice little pop of color. Uh, You can also dye your ropes or color them. That's a whole process in itself. which uh, which take it's a definitely a labor of love. But uh, my kind of workaround for that is I like to dye just the ends of them, just the, the bitter ends. Um, and I think, again, just adds that nice pop of color. Um, and the last one is, I don't know how many people actually do this. I know I do this with my personal kits uh, that I tie with, is I like to scent my ropes. Oh, nice. Yeah, so I uh, I make a, an oil blend and I scent the ropes as well when I treat them. So then when I tie with them, you have that the sensory experience as well. Um, and what, that's what sort of sense do you like to use with your rope? So I've I've moved around with them a little bit. Um, I originally my ropes were lavender, um, which I really liked. I think I remember actually tying somebody once and it was at a it was at a jam and the I didn't know the person. We were kind of just doing floor work and just buddied up to practice a thing. And I put a blindfold on on him and I took my ropes out and he actually got really emotional because he he was from France. And he was saying, like, it reminded him of the lavender fields near his grandmother's home from when he was a child. And I was like, that's very. And I went, are you okay? Do you want to keep going? (laughs) He's like, no, it was really nice. It's very sweet. It's okay." I was like, "Okay," But obviously, smell has like such a strong recall. Right. So you kind of have to like really think about what you're what you're using. So it used to be lavender. Um, I moved on to. Ylang Ylang, which is yeah. the which has a aphrodisiac property to it, nice. which I really enjoyed as well. And then there's a new one that I'm really enjoying the smell of. There's two new ones. I think I'm moving on to bergamot at the moment, and another one that I cannot remember the name of it. Maybe vetiver or something like this. Mm-hmm. But my uh, uh, my partner bought a bunch of essential oils, and I smelled that one. I went, "That's amazing! <laughs> I need that." <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really cool. Hey, dear listeners, we were having such a good time talking to Mel, and we talked with her for quite a while. 
Since we didn't want you to miss any of it, we put the second half of our interview with Mel in the very next episode. Thanks for listening. And have fun tying. <laughs>